But we're doing that. We're sort of asking the question, what if we loved where we lived? Uh, What if we took Jesus's command to love our neighbors literally? What would that look like? And so to do that, we're spending some extended time here in the books of first and second Peter during September and October. We're taking a look at the amazing resources and themes that Peter gives us in those books to be a great neighbor to the people around us in our neighborhoods and of course in our city. So let's do that this morning and we will pick up where we've been, which is in First Peter chapter 1. And the scripture reading this morning is verses 13 through 21. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Here we go. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. And that's God's word this morning. And today we come to one of the most important and simultaneously divisive and offensive themes and ideas that Peter and really the whole Bible talks about. And that's the topic of, wait for it, of holiness. Holiness, yeah, holiness. And you see it right there as we read in in verses 15 and 16. He said, be holy in what? All you do, right? And so you're saying, now, man, holiness? How is that a resource for me to be a better neighbor? And you may be asking that because probably when you hear the word holiness, there's likely a negative stereotype that you've encountered in our culture. And it's of the person who sort of picks up the, the word holiness or the idea of holiness and uses it like a stick to beat people with, you know, sort of like the church lady on Saturday Night Live, for those of you children of the 90s, you know, and 80s. And the church lady looks down her nose, doesn't she, at all the, the disapproved uh, movies and all the disapproved, uh, you know, ways of dressing and all the disapproved holidays that you shouldn't celebrate. And you, know, you think about her maybe, or maybe you think about somebody meaner, sort of like Mrs. Turpin in Flannery O'Connor's famous short story called Revelation. And it's about a woman, maybe you've read the stories, and Flannery O'Connor's this great writer. And she is it's about a woman who judges everyone for not being as good and moral and just and faithful to church and God like she was. And if you read the story, you know there's this, this unforgettable scene in the middle of the story where the mean and proud old Mrs. Turpin, she's in this hospital waiting room and she's both internally condemning, you can read her thoughts, and she's verbally judging every single person in the room for the flaws she can pick out. And you, you read her saying things like this, like, there's no trash around here that I haven't given to. And I break my back every day working and I do for the church and 
things like that. She goes on and on. And, and finally, when one of the other patients in the waiting room can't take old Mrs. Turpin's weaponization of morals and God anymore, there's a young woman there named Mary Grace, who was a college student. She was studying in the waiting room. And now, suddenly, out of the blue... Grace (laughs) throws a giant textbook at Mrs. Turpin's face, hits her square in the eye, and yells at her, Go back to hell, you old warthog. Oh, man, yeah. And and Mrs., excuse me, and Mary Grace's reaction to Mrs. Turpin is sort of the same reaction many people have to the idea of holiness, and especially Mrs. Turpin's version of holiness, and of course, understandably so, because it conjures up feelings and images of abuses or church judgment or something like that, and people ask, why do we need to talk about holiness? Isn't that judgmental, right? And of course, if if you were to go home to your neighbor today and say, at church they told me I should be, you know, I want to be a holy neighbor to you. How would they react? They'd probably give you the eye, the stink eye, the side eye, right? And hey, it's kind of judgmental of you probably. But is that what Bible holiness, true holiness is all about? Of course, you may be saying, Morgan, I can see where you're going with this a little bit anyway. And of course, you're going to say, no, that's not what holiness is. And, And you're right, it's not. And so may I suggest to you, because I will and just did, that the the possibility that perhaps none of what you've ever thought or been taught about holiness is actually what the Bible teaches. So for all you here today, which is you, and your heart either leaps at the word holiness or it falls at the word holiness, i like to ask both of you to check your motives. Why does your heart perhaps leap at the word holiness? Is it because maybe you think someone else needs to hear the message about holiness? Or on the other hand, why would you? Why would you recoil from the idea of holiness being preached? Because I believe if we understand rightly here what Peter is referencing, what he's teaching, what he's exhorting us to embrace, we will all see that what the Bible calls us to is actually more challenging, more beautiful, and more freeing in the end than anything we could possibly imagine. You say, how can that be? Well, let's take a look at what we learn here in 1 Peter by asking three questions of the passage. First, what is holiness? Two, what does it look like? And finally, how can we have it in our lives? Number one, let's ask, try to define what is holiness. And let's go back to verses 15 and 16, which we read. Peter writes, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in what? All you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. All right, stop, freeze. Uh, When most of you read this, of course, we begin by thinking of these verses and holiness itself in generally in terms of what? Of morality, right? Of morality. We think of morals and and virtues and, and the Ten Commandments and certainly God cares about those things because he did, after all, write the Ten Commandments. You know, they're not like the Ten Suggestions, right? They're the Ten Commandments and... In a real way, holiness isn't less than morality, but is that what Peter's talking about right here? 
Well, not at all. And so for you today, if you've heard holiness preached about primarily in terms of behavior or morality or what you wear or don't wear, or if you preach it yourself primarily in terms of morality and behavior, maybe you've beaten people up with this idea over the years, or you've been beaten up over the years with the idea of holiness, or maybe you've just known others who have been beaten up over the years with the idea of holiness. Well, you're about to be in for a surprise. Did you notice what one verse Peter quotes here as the centerpiece of his call to holiness? What was it? Where was it from? Well, of all places, the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, which is this strange and frankly kind of boring book in the Old Testament, at least on the surface. And if you're familiar at all with Leviticus, then you know it talks about what? About the sacrificial system of the Jewish people, of how they ran the tabernacle, how they set it up, how they took it down. And when you go back to Leviticus tonight and read Leviticus because you heard about it in church and you can't wait to get back to it, uh, you'll find that at three different places throughout the book, God says to the people, the verse Peter quoted, he says, be holy as or because I am holy. And so, of course, again, you begin to think of holiness in terms of morality, uh, like what the Ten Commandments say in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but then you say, hang on, wait a second, we're not in Exodus, and we're not in Deuteronomy, we're in Leviticus, and in Leviticus there are all kinds of things that God says can be, ought to be holy, and they're not just people, right? Because you read in Leviticus there are things like holy tables, holy chairs, holy lamps, and crying out loud, holy curtains, right? And so right away you begin to see that the essence of or the heart of holiness cannot be morality alone, right? Because after all, what would a moral table or moral lamp look like? And maybe a better and even scarier question would be, what does an immoral table look like? <laughs> what does an evil lamp look like? You know, does the, does the immoral table steal your food when you look away? Or does the evil lamp try to burn your house down when you're, when you're sleeping? No. Holiness cannot mean morality first. So what does it mean? All right. Well, the Hebrew word for holiness is kadesh, which just means to be set apart or committed to or dedicated to God. The Greek word is agios. Same things, cut off, separated. And so right away, of course, you can begin to understand how God could say he is holy, right? He's set apart from us, unique from us, different from planets and stars and space and, and, and humans and animals. He's utterly unique in his own category. And that's why God can say he's holy. But what does it mean for something or someone to be holy? Well, let's go back to that table or that lamp for a minute and just ask, how could a Jewish person's table in that day become holy? And maybe how could your table in your home today or apartment become holy? Would, would your table, would it become holy if you stood in front of it and read it the Ten Commandments for an hour? Hmm? Would it become holy? What about if you shouted at your table or chair or curtains to stop sitting? Hmm? Would they become holy? No. The only way to make your table holy, the only way for a Jewish person to make his or her table holy would be to set it apart for God's exclusive use and exclusively for the worship of God. And so that's your working definition of holiness. Here it is. Christian holiness is belonging to God. That's what it is. It's belonging to God. Something that is holy belongs to God. 
A holy table belongs to God. A holy person belongs to God. Something holy is for God's exclusive use, not for another person's use, and not even for their own use. And that's why what Peter is doing here, church, oh, it's so radical. He's looking back to Leviticus, but then he's going way beyond it. He's saying to his audience then and to us today, remember, remember how those tables became holy. Remember how that bread became holy. It was holy. Not because it was moral bread, because it was bread that was set apart for God. It belonged to God, which means this, to be holy as God is holy, to live out 1 Peter 1 here, goes way beyond morality. It isn't less, but it's far more, which also means this, it's way better than what you've believed it is. And it's worse than what you believe it is. And you say, well, how can it be worse? Here's why it's worse. Because it's possible, isn't it, to be moral for selfish reasons, right? It just is. That's totally possible. In fact, I know it's possible because that's how I used to parent my children. Sorry, kids. Went something along these lines. Come on, kids. Don't lie. Be a better person. You're a better person than that. Or come on, kids, don't steal, right? It's not in your best interest. Well, why not, Daddy? Well, here's why, son. Because you don't want people to think of you as a thief. Why not, Daddy? Because if people think of you as a thief, they won't hire you. And if they won't hire you, you can't get the job you want, which means you won't be able to make as much money as you want. Or maybe you won't be able to be fulfilled as one day uh, as you want to be fulfilled. In other words, son, basically, don't lie or steal because you want to be rich one day. Wait, was that what I was saying? But daddy, but daddy, what if lying or stealing can make me richer one day? What if it's in my best interest to lie or steal or cheat one day? Ah, oh, well, let's not talk about that. Who, you know, who's playing on the television now? What game is on? See, it's possible, isn't it, to be absolutely moral and yet totally selfish at the same time. But it's never possible to be holy and to be selfish because if you are set apart for God's exclusive use, if you belong to him, then it doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter the consequence. You're going to do what's right no matter what. You're going to do what's just in every situation based on a motive of self-giving, not self-serving. Oh, morality, it'll never produce, morality alone will never produce true holiness in your life. But true holiness will always produce a beautiful kind of morality. People ask all the time, maybe you've heard this or this is your objection today. You know, I, I don't need God to be good. Maybe you've heard that. People say, I can be a good and moral person on my own. Why do I need God to be good? Oh, but haven't you, haven't you read the Bible? Didn't we read it here this morning? God never says, be moral for I am moral. He never says, be really nice because I'm really nice. He doesn't say, be good and squeaky clean because I'm good and squeaky clean. No, he says, be holy for I am holy, right? We have made up the part about God's highest desire for us being something of being nice or being good. And I hope you're nice and I, I hope you're good. But listen, you can be superficially moral without God, but you'll never be truly moral and good without belonging to him in the deepest place 
of your life. Why? Well, because the command here, church, isn't just to be moral and look good on the outside while still allowing your heart to be full of latent and buried anger or, or judgment or, or racism or apathy or indifference to the plight of the suffering in our world and community. No, listen, you can keep the commandments, can't you? All ten of them, at least on the surface, and still be the most miserable, uptight, selfish, greedy, despicable me kind of person. You know, like grew incarnate uh, in your life. You can, listen, you can load up your heart with moral ammunition against the law of love. Should I give to God's kingdom? Nope, I'm a moral person. I didn't cheat on my wife. Don't have to give. Blow it down, right? Should I really serve the poor? Like me serve the poor? Nope. nope. I didn't steal the day. Right? Should I pray and forgive my enemies? No, man, I didn't have to. I didn't covet my neighbor's donkey this week like the commandment told me not to, right? You shoot down holiness, the law of love, with morality. And interesting. Listen, you can take your morality and your goodness and your commandment keeping and you can shove them church why because your morality and your commandment keeping can send you straight to hell like it was sending mrs turpin right god doesn't say oh be moral as if he just wanted to live on the outskirts of your decision making process or was content if you threw him a financial bone when all of your wants and needs were desired no were fulfilled he says you want to relate to me hmm? you want to be spiritual you want to claim you know me here it is be holy for I am holy. Be devoted to me. Belong to me. Be set apart from me. Your mornings, your evenings, your emotions, every part of your life set apart from me. Be holy, for I am holy. And that's what it is. Not rule keeping. Much deeper than that. Way more challenging than that. Holiness is belonging to God. Do you belong to him? You say, all right, fair enough, Morgan, but let's get practical now. You got my interest a little bit. You were yelling at me a minute ago. Fine, all right. You know, but I got this like, you know, Rolodex thing. It's happening. What, what, what about this? What about that? What does it look like? How do I live it out? Fine. Peter, thankfully, answers your questions here. Peter does do that. He gives us a number of categories. I can't give you all of them. You can look it up, but we've only got time for two here in depth. So let's take a look at those by asking number two. Well, what does? What does holiness look like, actually? Well, the first thing you can see that it connects to, what it's a part of, is back at the top of the passage in verse 13, which says this, Peter said, therefore, with what? With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you, catch this, when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So what part of you belongs to God? Well, interesting here enough, he's saying your mind must belong to God. What you think, how you think. In other words, a Christian is expected to use his or her mind and to think. C.S. Lewis said, God does not approve of intellectual slackers any more than he approves of any other kind of slacker. Uh, Little joke for you there. All right. Thank you for that. Not only are you expected to use your mind, though, here's what Peter's saying. You're expected to train your mind to think. And you get this from the original Greek in this phrase, which literally reads, Peter says, gird up 
the loins of your mind. It's an old expression because in that day, everyone, the men included, wore these long flowing robes, which meant if you wanted to get somewhere in a hurry and go beyond just walking, what would you have to do? Well, you'd have to pick up your robes as the saying went. You'd have to gird yourself up. You'd have to pick up your robes and tie a belt around them. So to prepare yourself, in other words, for action, to be ready for anything, you'd have to gird yourself up. And Peter's saying, do that with and in your mind, in your mind. Get your mind, he says, ready for anything. And then he gives you an example of how to do that. And it's amazing. He says, you want to know what can steady your mind and grow your mind and blow your mind and give your mind peace at every moment? He says this, think about one thing. He says, the return of Christ, the return of Christ. Why would he say that? can give you peace of mind. Well, think about it. Because the return of Christ is where what? Where all evil will be put right, where every injustice will be brought to light, where creation will be made new, and under God's loving and righteous rule, every sad thing will come untrue. And that's the future the Bible promises that will happen. Now, by contrast, if there is no God, Here's what that really means. It means that when you die, you rot. It means there's really no ultimate hope or meaning or purpose. Love is really just a chemical in your job and your children and your efforts towards peace and justice are pointless because right and wrong are illusions and constructs people have made up. Listen, that's what it means if there's no God and no Christ returning. Now, the average, of course, skeptic and atheist would say, well, if you think about it like that, sure. But I don't like to think about it like that. In other words, if that's you, you're getting your peace from not thinking. You see that? But Peter is saying, if you are a Christian, you gotta think. And if you're not at peace today, it means you're not thinking. It means you haven't set your mind on the fact that one day everything is going to be okay and it's all going to work out in the end. And church, that's holy thinking because when your mind's at peace, now you're ready for anything. Now you're ready for anything for God's use. Now, that's just one example. And imagine if you dug a little deeper into God's word every day to find the resources there for you. So that's first. That's your mind. Now, second, he talks about, of course, your will. And holiness has got to get down into the level of our will, of our wants, of our desires, of our wanters. Right? That's what it's going to talk about. He goes on, he says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So yes, God absolutely, he's got something to say about your wants, your desires, how you feel, how you live. But look at the underlying assumption here. He's saying that you are relating to God as how? As a perfect what? Father. He doesn't call us here obedient servants, right? Or obedient employees or factory workers. No, as obedient children, right? And that's how God parents us and how you ought to parent your child if you're a parent not going after morals or behavior right away but after what desires our wanter what we want to do and what we don't want to do case study coming 
There's an amazing little book I, I've come across recently about the life of someone named Zhang, forgive, forgive the pronunciation, Rong Liang. He was one of the leaders of the five main underground house church movements in China from the 70s up till today. And Zhang, like many and even most Chinese Christians, spent time in prison for simply being a Christian and owning a Bible. But for him, because he was a leader, it was worse. He was repeatedly whipped and beaten, tortured, starved. His family was harassed and beaten for years and years. And his life was spent in and out of prison and labor camps. And after Chairman Mao died in 1978, many prisoners were temporarily released. And Zhang was one of them. And in his book, in his autobiography, he, he talks about how, uh, how he came home, how he was released from prison, and how he went back to his village. But he, he hadn't seen his wife and his, his only son there for many years, and this is what he wrote about his homecoming experience. He said, there is a traditional Chinese saying passed down to us from our ancestors that says, you die so that I can live. It is used to describe, he says, your enemies in battle. You don't want to die, so you take the life of your enemy. You don't give your life for your cause. You make the enemy give his life, and then you eliminate the threat this idea has been passed down from generation to generation through thousands of years in china but two thousand years ago jesus gave us new life and a new way to live now christians in china he said must claim i must die so that jesus can live in me you say how he's showing that holiness gets down under your wants, your desires, your feelings. It's right there. He goes on. He says, after I returned home, I, I heard talk about one of my neighbors, a man named Wubo Qian. Wubo deeply hated me and my family. Uh, and when, when Zhang was the commander uh, in the area for the Communist Party, there had been a raid that was carried out on Wubo's home because he, he had some traditional idols in his home. And, of course, the Communist Party was atheist. And Wubo assumed that Zhang was the initiator of the raid, but Zhang said, I had no idea, not even aware of it. And during the time when Zhang was in prison, Wubo had gone around celebrating. He had loudly shouted to everyone that Zhang was this evil and despicable man who deserved to be in prison. And when Zhang was doing the hard labor camp outside the camp, carrying dynamite up the mountain, where many of the prisoners were killed because it exploded. Wubo would go out to insult him and, and, and cheer for his death. And so Zhang goes on. He said, when I returned home from prison, surprise, surprise, <laughs> Wubo automatically assumed that I, Zhang said, I would seek revenge against him. In fact, he said, he was afraid that I would hire someone to kill him and even murder his whole family while he was while they were asleep. And Zheng said, he said, I knew in my heart that I had to go and let Wubo know about the great God whom I serve. Wubo saw me as his enemy, but I saw him as a family member. God had created Wubo and he loved him. And because of God's love for him, I also loved him. Shane goes on, he said, I bought gifts for the spring festival to give to Wubo, but my family had little to no money. And when I arrived at his home, he answered the door. And when he saw who it was, his eyes went wide with alarm. Dear Wubo, I began. Shang said, his family peered out from behind him, expecting the worst even to be killed. He said, I come to you. Hey, said, I come to you bringing these gifts. I continued as I pulled out the desserts and other treats that I had brought for him and for his family. And Zhang said this, please accept these gifts as a token of my friendship. Please forgive me for anything I have done wrong to you or your family. 
And by the time Zhang said, I said the word forgive, tears had already started to flow from the corners of my eyes. The family was disarmed and Wubo's suspicion turned to confusion. His eyes narrowed in on me as I offered the gifts to him. In an instant, his defenses were demolished by the love of Christ. And he began to weep. Oh, please forgive me, Zhang, he replied. Please forgive me for what I have done to you. And we embraced while his whole family watched in amazement. I need to tell you why I came here, Zhang said. And then he said, I told the entire family about the love of Jesus Christ. And that afternoon, Wubo and his family accepted Jesus as Savior. Wubo didn't just become my friend that afternoon. He became my brother. Furthermore, Wubo's son and grandson later played a major part of the building of the underground church in China. Wow, it's amazing. And friends, that is holiness. That's holiness. That's a life and desires and motives set apart. A life belonging to God. Yeah, you can see Zhang was moral, right? I mean, he didn't just go with his culture's flow and say, hey, I'm going to get revenge against you, right? No, he didn't just do that. He wasn't just moral. He was holy. His desire for even distance from his enemy was gone. It's amazing. What had Zhang done to Wubo? Nothing. And yet he was the one with the gifts, with humility, with repentance, tears on the doorstep. Andrew Murray, the Scottish and South African preacher, said this. He said, quote, The one infallible test of our holiness will be the humility before God and men which marks us. Jesus, the Holy One, is the humble one. The holiest will ever be the humblest. How could this have happened in Zhang? I mean, wasn't Zhang the one who had been wrong? Yeah, he was. Well, this could happen in him. Even his desires could be changed because he knew one thing. And church, the same thing. Your desires can be changed today too. If you know the one thing, this one thing, number three, how we can have holiness in our lives. Let's ask, oh, what did, what did Zhang know? What did Peter know? What can we know? It's verse 18. Peter tells you. He says, for you know what? That it was not with, him, with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Oh, Peter's saying here to his audience, yeah, 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 I know this sounds, church, like a tall order to fill, right? I know the Roman government's persecuting us, yeah. I know you live in the middle of a pagan culture. You're being slandered and maybe the media isn't fair to you. And the talk show hosts malign your faith and the culture appears to be darkening. And so because all that's happening, it's just understandable if you don't want to live a holy life anymore. It's understandable if you just give in. No, he doesn't say that. He says, remember, God has told us, called us to live holy lives in all we do. Why? Oh, because you know, he says, what? What Jesus has done. He says, you know how Jesus redeemed you from the empty way of life. Your parents gave you, your grandparents gave you, your culture gave you. He's saying, remember how lost you were when Jesus found you. And if you, you want to live a holy life today and have your motive, desires changed, he's saying, think about that. And it's true. When I when I want to feel the closest to Jesus, you know what I'll do? 
I'll think back to that night on the University of Houston campus when Jesus came in and he found me and he rescued me. And I'll think about how I knew all about him, but I never knew him. And I'll think about how he came and he delivered me from my pride and my lust and my perversion. Oh, and from the illusion I had that I really knew him. And how, though I did not deserve it, Jesus rescued me and broke the chains that were too strong for me. And I'll remember now, oh, I belong to a God like that. And yes, I'll do anything for you, God. Man, I'll break up with that girlfriend. Yeah, I'll give him all my money away. I'll go into ministry and I'll even move to Austin, Texas. Middle of that city, right? I'll do it. What had happened to me? Jesus Christ had become, and this is the word Peter uses, he had become precious to me. Precious. Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, he asked the same question. He said, is Jesus precious to you? What does it even mean for something to be precious to you? And he said this case study, he said, imagine if you thought that you were terminally ill, that you were going to die, you were sick beyond hope. But then he said, imagine if you got word that a major medical breakthrough and, and, and cure and medicine for your illness had been created, that you would now be able to get it and to be healed. But because it was so new and hard to make that he was really expensive, unbelievably expensive. And to get the treatment that you needed, you'd have to sell all your belongings and sell your nice house and move into this small and cramped apartment. He said, what does it mean for something to be precious to you? Oh, it means to say yes to and give everything for the no, that everything for the thing you know you most need to live. He said, you may miss your house. Yeah, you may miss your stuff, but you'd sell it all in an instant, wouldn't you? To be cured and be with your loved ones, with your family, spouse, kids again. You'd think, man, is that all it takes for me to pass from death to life is to sell my house? Yeah, and now it may look like cramped living on the outside. But from the inside, oh, you don't mind it at all. Because why? You've been healed. You've been loved. You've been set free. That's holiness. You ask, well, how? How can I get that? Like this. When you see Jesus Christ on the cross for you, shedding his own precious blood to bring you out of death to life, when you see him being abandoned by his friends and forsaken by his father, when you see him becoming a curse for you and you know that he did it for you because you were and are precious to him because you see him laying down his life you know that God so loved you he gave his only son that you might not perish. Oh then, when you see yourself being precious to him now he'll be precious to you. Before Zhang Rongling was sentenced to his first prison term, he had the opportunity to recant his faith. Uh, Zhang had been a rising leader in the Communist Party, and so the party had given him one last chance to stay out of prison and one more night to think about it and about his fate and one more opportunity to write an official letter recanting his faith. But Zhang wrote this, he said, That night, as I sat down to write that letter again, I knew that what I wrote had the power to determine my future. I just needed to decide what kind of future I wanted to have. I had a clear choice between happiness or suffering, the party or Jesus, freedom or prison, the world or heaven, eternal death or eternal life. I couldn't eat or sleep. I knelt down before the Lord and began to pray. 
After a short time of prayer, I stood up, determined to write what I must. What was I debating? I had already decided to follow Jesus and had no intention of turning back. And as I began to pray again, I felt Jesus standing by my side. And suddenly a couple of scripture verses came to me. God laid these words from the Song of Solomon on my heart. Love is as powerful as death. Passion is as strong as death itself. It bursts into flame and burns like a raging fire. Water cannot put it out. No flood can drown it. And in that moment, I was empowered to make my decision. I said, Jesus, you are all that matters to me. You matter most in life. How can I do anything other than choose you? The following morning, I handed in my note. I ended it with, I stand with Jesus Christ. How great is the salvation that he has brought. Nothing can compare to it. And with that, Zhang entered prison and began to suffer for the gospel. Oh, how could he do this? It was because he saw he was precious to Jesus. And now Jesus was precious to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to want Jesus like that. I want him and his salvation and his rescue and his redemption and his word and his presence to become more and more precious to me until I look holy, until I taste holy, until I feel holy, until I live holy. I want that. I want our church to be that. I want that for you. What if? What if we could live like that church? What if we saw how precious we were to Jesus? And now then we lived in a way that showed we were precious to him. Can we do that? Do you want that this morning? Let's pray. Let's go to him and ask for that to touch our hearts as we close this morning.